0: Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Josh Pollard. I'm the adult ministries pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, we took a short break last week uh, from our study in the book of Luke, but we're back in it now in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Luke. And this week, we're finishing up chapter 20. Uh, so you can go ahead and grab that Bible under the chair in front of you, or if you're in the front row, it's under your chair, if you, or if you brought one, that'd be super great. Uh, if you don't own one, keep that Bible. That's why they're there. Right? We give them out every week. Uh, people take them all the time. We just, I just saw last week UPS delivered two more boxes of Bibles because people keep taking them, which is awesome. Uh, it's, it means we're getting Bibles into the hands of the people around this community. Uh, you can also follow along in the Renovation Church app by tapping Bible and weekly verses. Now you may remember, and you're going to want to keep that Bible open to Luke chapter 20, by the way, because we're going to be looking around there a whole bunch, but you might remember that Pastor David spoke on verses 27 to 40 a couple of weeks ago, uh, where Jesus showed that he truly knows the scriptures and the power of God better than anyone by teaching on the marriage in the resurrection. We're actually going to jump over verses 41 to 44 where Jesus quotes Psalm 110 to mercifully show these people once again that He, as the Messiah, the Savior, the long awaited King, is no mere mortal man, but He is the pre existent divine Son of God. And we are fast forwarding that because Pastor David spoke on that very Psalm back on January 17th, where he touches on that passage a bit. So you can see that message on our website. Uh, it's titled The Prophecy of the Priest King, uh, which brings us to today's passage, which is Luke chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 45. So if you would pray with me before we get going, I would appreciate that. Uh, Father, we come to uh, your feet today to hear your word, to hear your good news. Uh, We ask that you would speak to us today through what you have given us in the Bible. Uh, I ask for mercy as I preach on a a difficult and kind of scary topic, Uh, but I ask that you would make it a life-giving topic for this church, that we would hear your truth in it, that our lives would be transformed by your word, Uh, and we ask that you be glorified today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 45 let's set the scene. Jesus has come to Jerusalem where he knows he will die. That is why he has come there. It is Wednesday of that week, and he'll be dead in two days. In fact, all week long, he's been teaching in the temple. And it says at the end of the last chapter that every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests The teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they couldn't find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. All day, Jesus has been verbally sparring with different groups, all who claim authority, religious authority in Israel. Remember that this chapter started by them asking Jesus, by whose authority do you do these things? The teachers of the law are analyzing him to find a weakness. The chief priests look down on his condemnation of them. The Sadducees are challenging his knowledge of the Scripture, and he mercifully, lovingly tries to tell them, again, I am not King David's descendant, I am King David's God. And the crowds are hanging on his every word. But the leaders will not listen. They will not listen. And so we get to verse 45, where we are today. And here's what he says. It says, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. And I can just see it in my mind. Can you see it? If you close your eyes, you can see the stone-white walls of the temple court with literally thousands of people in them. It was a huge place. Thousands of people had come for the Passover, some of them in rags who had traveled from very far, some in ornate priestly garb, a bright midday sun in the sky, and if you look down from overhead, you can see Jesus standing in the middle of concentric circles of people all pressing in to hang on his every word, to hear what this guy has to say. And Jesus turns away from that crowd that he's been speaking to, and he looks at his disciples, and he points over at the teachers of the law. And he says, beware of these guys, these ones, these guys right here. Watch out. These guys will be punished most severely and it seems really intense. And so let's ask some questions to this verse, to this passage, to figure out what is going on here. Why is it so intense for these guys? So who are they, first of all? Who are these men, these teachers of the law? Well, other translations, we're using the NIV, NIV, NIV translation today. Other translations, we'll call them the scribes. And these uh, scribes, these teachers of the law, were experts in the letter of the law. And they also, as experts, often practiced law. They were the lawyers of sorts for the Israelite people. And as teachers of the law, they were probably more akin to, like, theology professors than they were to preachers. You know, more focused on technical expertise in interpreting the Old Testament law than with actually spiritually guiding the people like a preacher might do. But they were all talk and no walk when it came to true religion. As lawyers, they were often put in charge of widows' estates. And Jesus points out in our passage today that they would often take advantage of those widows' vulnerable position in their society. And so, Jesus charges them with one of the most heinous crimes in the entire New Testament. One that Jesus says will be punished most severely. Hypocrisy as a religious leader. The pursuit of outward piety and inward predation. To give the appearance and the show of speaking on behalf of God and yet taking advantage of his sheep. It isn't the first time that he's called them out on this. He absolutely hammers them at the dinner party back in Luke 11 with the Pharisees. He hammers them. He says this back in Luke 11. He says, And you, experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors that killed them. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Woe to you, he says. Woe to you. Jesus is never shy about condemning hypocritical religious leaders. Never, even at a dinner party. Can you imagine? Woe to you! And pass the tater tot hot dish, please. It looks delicious. Woe to you! Try the rolls. They're great. It'd be crazy. Man, but hypocrisy of religious leaders is no joke to Jesus. It reminds us that there are false teachers that claim to know God, even to this day. They say, I am a Christian, but what they teach is not the word of God. What they practice is not worship of the one true God, as he has revealed himself in Scripture. What they produce is not fruit of the Spirit of God, and what they fear is people and not God. They may sound good, and they may be attractive in a spiritual way, and they may command respect, and they may have a religious gravity about them, but Jesus looks at his disciples then, and he looks at you and I today, and he says, beware, get away from them. They have nothing good to offer you. They are not from me. They are against me. They may claim my name, but my spirit does not live in them. And Romans 8.10 says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Jesus says it to his disciples like this in Matthew 7.15. He says, watch out for false prophets. That's someone that speaks on God's behalf. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. In Luke 12, verse 1, Jesus says it like this. He says, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we should take this very seriously. Now There are two telltale signs of false religious leaders that Jesus has shown us, not just in today's passage, but the entirety of Luke chapter 20. The first is that they do not know the scriptures. And the second is that they do not believe the scriptures that they do know, so they live contrary to what it says. Let's take a look at the first one. Now, the teachers of the law knew Scripture. That was their job, right? To know what it said. That was their role in society. But we did see a few weeks ago uh, that Jesus told the Sadducees, another group of Jews in Israel, that they were wrong because they didn't know Scripture. And When you don't know Scripture, it results in poor theology. Basically believing or teaching something that is not what the Bible teaches. We have plenty, plenty of examples of this in today's world. Many examples. I'm going to name a few of the major ones that we should all keep on our radar, that we should be aware of and watch out for, to guard against, not just for yourself, but for the health of our church. Okay? The first one, the first example of poor theology resulting from not knowing Scripture is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches that if you love God enough, you will be blessed Financially, materially, health-wise, and you'll be happy. And if you don't have those things, uh, it's because you basically, you don't actually love God enough. You know, they might cite a passage even, like Matthew 7, verse 11. It says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? But don't be alarmed when they use Scripture. Even the Sadducees were referring to Scripture when they were asking about marriage and the resurrection. Even the devil himself quotes Scripture back in Luke 4 when he's tempting Christ in the wilderness. But one glance at the life of Paul... The Apostle Paul will show you that he loved God more than most and that he was very joyful and very rich and very alive, but only spiritually. Physically, he was often depressed and utterly impoverished and in bad, painful health, and he was persecuted and beaten and in prison. Those that teach the prosperity gospel do not know the scriptures. Beware of them. The second one that I'll touch on is that Jesus loves, but he does not judge. Tell me, church, does Jesus not associate with sinners in the Bible? Yes, he does. Right? Would he forgive the worst sinner ever if they genuinely repented and came to him? Yes, he would. Does he not take you just as you are? Yes, he does. He takes you just as you are. Does he not say, do not judge, and you will not be judged? Well, yes, he does in Luke 6. He says that. But we can see right in today's passage that he judged the teachers of the law. And he says they'll be punished most severely. If you've been paying attention at all to our study of the book of Luke, you'd see that Jesus is constantly calling people out on what is right and what is wrong. He may take you as you are, but you must be clay in his hands so he can reshape you. It's all over all four Gospels. It's all over the epistles. You can even find it in Revelation. He is constantly telling parables about separating the goats from the sheep, the wheat from the chaff, life governed by the flesh from life governed by the Spirit, namely, uh, life lived from a deep reverence and love for God is what is right. And anything, anything that stems from something that is not that is sin. It is sinful action. Even... If it appears religious or ethical or good, it is sin if it doesn't stem from a deep, reverent love and obedience from God, to God. Those that teach that Jesus loves, but he does not judge your sin as sin, do not know the scriptures, so beware of them. The next one is that you can pay for your sins. And we see this in two different ways these days. Uh, the first one is called works righteousness. It's basically, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you go to the good place when you die. They might even point to a verse like 2 Corinthians 5, which says, for we, all, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And don't be alarmed, again, when they quote Scripture. I'll talk about that a bit more in a second, but it is not a trump card to pull a verse out. They interpret that scripture, that passage, to say that you essentially save yourself from hell by doing good deeds. However, Jesus and all throughout scriptures are quite clear that it is through faith alone that we are saved and that good works are just evidence of that faith, just fruit of that faith. It is very clear that we have all sinned and fall short. There are not enough good deeds you could do. If you, had, if you could do every good deed, it would still not be enough. The Apostle Paul talks about this extensively. No one is good in God's eyes unless he sees you through the blood of Christ, which is applied to you through faith in Christ. And the second way we see that you can pay for your sins uh, is through the idea of purgatory. Which is the idea that when Christians die, uh, they are saved from hell, but they must go through a pre-heaven cleansing where they suffer a little bit to be purified the rest of the way, uh, to be ready to enter the holy God's presence in heaven. However, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made him to be no, or God made Him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And I must say, the righteousness of God does not need extra shining up. There is no clear biblical support for the idea that we need to suffer a bit in some purgatory-like place to pay for the last icky bits of our unholiness that Jesus forgot in the corner. Either Jesus redeemed us or he didn't. He was not a half-off coupon to heaven. Those that teach that you can pay for your sins, either in this life or in some other way, do not know the scriptures, so beware of them. The next one is that some form of human progress will save us. Many people claim uh, this these days, and it's the idea that As we mature as a society, as we progress, we'll be able to meet everyone's needs. And so we won't need to do bad things anymore to get what we want or what we need. And anyone that believes that has sadly, tragically, confused technological advancement with moral advancement. But as technology improves, our sinful hearts stay the same as they always were. The only way to advance morally is to accept Christ so that the Holy Spirit can come into you and transform you. There is no other way to progress away from sin. Anyone that teaches that human progress is coming to some moral utopia in the future does not know the Scriptures, so beware of them. The next one, the last one, uh, is the, that renunciation or detachment from the physical world in some way will give you some sort of spiritual freedom, freeing to your spirit. But you don't have to look past the book of Genesis to see that God made the material world and called it good. You know He provides for our physical needs. In the book of Acts, the believers didn't renounce or detach from their material world. No, they started to share all their goods with each other to meet each other's physical needs. It'd be pretty messed up for God to provide for our bad physical needs. And Jesus himself, he was glorified in his physical, material, bodily resurrection. Not in his death. It was in his resurrection that he was glorified. Material things are not bad. A possessive love of them is. Anyone that teaches that renouncing the physical world and detaching yourself from it does not know the scriptures. So beware of them. So those are some of the most most common religious ideologies that people teach that do not reflect what the Bible teaches. Of course, there are a lot others that you could add to that list. But any time that someone is making claims about what God says or how the world works, we need to check them against Scripture, the whole of Scripture. But what if those people who are making those claims are quoting Scripture? See, the issue there is what we call cherry-picking verses. It's where you pick a verse that is somewhat ambiguous, and it could maybe mean this or that, and when you cherry-pick it out of its context, it becomes quite difficult to know the truth of what the author actually intended for it to mean. And the antidote to that is to know more of Scripture better so that you can then interpret those verses in the context of what the whole Bible says and not as a single verse out of context. You have to let Scripture, the entirety of Scripture, be your teacher, not a person. So how can you grow in your knowledge of Scripture? Well, one great way is to sign up for a Renovation U course this summer, just like you heard John talk about a minute ago. You can do it right now on the paper under the chair in front of you, or on your app, or out in the hall after the service. I would highly encourage you to do that. Now, not knowing Scripture was only the first way of the two telltale signs of a false leader. Not knowing Scripture was the first way. But in today's verse, Jesus is talking with the teachers of the law, uh, and they didn't really have that issue. You know, They knew the words of Scripture forward and backward. That was their, their job. They knew it really well. So their issue was really the second telltale sign of a false religious leader, and that is that they do not live according to what the Scripture actually says. So let's go back to our verse in Luke 20, if you have it open there, verse 45. It says, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. These men will be punished most severely because they were primarily concerned with the outward appearance of someone that knows God and with having the cultural status of someone of influence. But while all that information was in their heads... None of it was in their hearts. The info was in their heads, but the truth wasn't in their hearts. And likewise, today, in some ways, it can be challenging for us because hypocritical Christians, they often look a lot like genuine Christians. They appear the same sometimes. Making long prayers, that's a good thing. We should be doing that. The Bible says don't even stop praying. And that's a good thing. Explaining theology, that's a good thing when it's done genuinely. Tithing is a good thing. Going to church, it's a good thing. You all got that one today. Good job. Avoiding destructive lifestyles like drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and gluttony. Those are good things when they're genuinely stemming from a reverent obedience and joy in God. if they sin from any other way, then they would be sinful actions just the same, even though they look the same, because they're not motivated by the Spirit, by that obedient, joyful reverence, but they are motivated by concern for your appearance. They are motivated by your flesh, not the Spirit, and that is why the teachers of the law would be punished. So now that we've studied this passage and we've looked at it in some detail, here are two main takeaways. The first is this if hypocritical religious leaders have been a stumbling block to you, then you are already on the side of Jesus in that argument. If you hear stories and news of pastors and famous influential Christians that have been found out to have secret double lives exposed, or if you've been a part of a church where a leader has been obviously governed by the flesh, Or, if you learn about the scandalous predation of innocent children by people that claim the name of Jesus and you are knocked back and it takes your breath away and you're questioning everything about Christianity, then realize what the Christ said about such people. He was not on their side. No, he says, Woe to them. Beware of those ravenous, ferocious wolves. Those hypocrites are hungry, but they will be punished most severely. Our God is a God of justice, and our King Jesus is a righteous judge. And as a general rule, it'd be wise for us not to attach ourselves too closely to any teacher, particularly famous ones. If they have a Wikipedia page, that should be a warning sign. It's difficult for us, for anybody, to hear news stories of famous pastors or Christian authors or Christian musicians leaving the faith or being exposed as a hypocrite. It's particularly hard, especially if your faith was positively influenced by them. In those cases, I I find encouragement in a passage uh, that you can find in Philippians chapter 1. Verses fifteen to eighteen, Paul wrote this while he was in prison. Okay, he says it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach out of preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that it will stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I will rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Hypocrites cannot produce their own fruit, but the Word of God can produce fruit even if the person that preaches it isn't sincere. So if your faith was influenced by someone that Later, turned away. Realize that you were not their fruit. Your faith was the fruit of the Word of God. Attach your theology and your faith to Scripture, not to an interpreter of Scripture. Don't believe something because so and so said it, believe it because it's what the Bible says. People will let you down. The word of God never will. The second lesson we can learn from our study is don't be a hypocrite, particularly uh, if you're a leader. If you're a teacher or a professor or if you're a small group leader or if you're a ministry leader or if you're on staff or if you're a volunteer in renovation kids, Pay special attention to the things that Jesus says to leaders because he's saying them to you. If you aren't convinced enough by the gospel to say you are transformed, then don't be a leader. If you don't know the scriptures or know them and don't believe them enough to be transformed by them, then don't be a leader. We do not need more Christian leaders. We need more followers of Jesus Christ. Now, there's an important distinction, very important distinction I think we need to make between struggling with sin as a leader and outright hypocrisy. Because leaders will sin every day. Leaders sin every day. All the time. The difference is confession of that sin as sin versus keeping up appearances. The difference is making war on that sin with the help of your fellow Christians through the power of the Holy Spirit, versus, as some would say, making peace with your sin. And as one of your pastors, and since I know the rest of the staff pretty well, I'm sure they would echo me when I say, I am not to be honored. Christ is to be honored. I'm deserving of every bit of punishment that the scribes are. Do not let my position trick you. Christians do not think that they are any better than anyone else or deserving of any glory, but their distinguishing mark is that they are wretched and they know it, and only Jesus can save them and redeem them and forgive them and transform them. We are not joyful because we are good. We are joyful because Jesus is good, and that makes us want to be close to Him. And if you are hearing this message today and you want to be close to Him, then you can. Maybe you are just hearing about this. Or maybe, maybe you were hurt by someone that claimed the name of Christ in the past, and you were not able to hear the gospel through that noise through that pain, through their hypocrisy. Or maybe you've been keeping up appearances, but you admit to yourself that you aren't really transformed. You aren't regenerated, that you are a new creation in Christ. But you want to appear that way to other people because it seems like the good thing to do, the right thing to do. I should do these things. But if you want to be transformed You can be. He offers that. So what I want us to do, if you are a Christian, then what I want you to do is close your eyes and pray for the person next to you. Pray that if it be God's will, that today would be the day. That they would hear Him call to them. And that they would trust in Him more than any other teacher. That they would give up with appearances And take hold of Christ's gift of free salvation. And if that is you, if you know that God is calling you to be a genuine follower of Jesus starting today, that today is the day when your transformation begins, when the Holy Spirit comes into you and changes your heart, changes your life, then what I want you to do is just as a way to say yes to that, just raise your hand. He says, I have a gift for you. Raise your hand if you want it. If you know in your heart that God is telling you, you are a sinner, but Jesus died for your sins, and you want to accept that free gift and be his follower, then there is no more time to waste. I beg you to raise your hand and join the rest of us here that are sinners in this room that rely on Jesus. Now is the time. It is so worth it. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? There's no time to waste. There's no benefit from not doing it. Amen. Yes, sir. Awesome. So for those of you that raise your hand, we want to pray with you. All of us are going to pray this together. You're going to repeat this prayer out loud after me, and it's not a magic prayer. It's just, some, it's just what we all believe. Whether you're a brand new believer or one that's been a believer for decades, this is what guides our life. This is what we believe. So church, let's all pray this together. Say, dear God, I confess to you that I have sinned against you But God, I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, to take my place. And God, I thank you for forgiving my sins. And now I commit to following you with my life. And while everyone's still praying and thanking God for this amazing miracle, when someone gets saved, it's a greater miracle than if someone in the first row's leg fell off in the first song and grew back in the third song. (laughs) That leg will still die in a few years. But when someone is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they will live eternally in heaven with Christ. This is the greatest miracle ever. Do you guys realize? Two times. Praise the Lord. While you guys are all praying... I'm going to ask that if you uh, came to Christ just now, in a second here, I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to move into a last song of worshiping God. Grab the arm of the person that brought you, and I'll meet you out in the lobby where it's a bit quieter. Just give you the next information of what's next, because this is the biggest thing. This is the biggest day of your life, biggest decision you've ever made, and we just want to give you a little more information. Uh, You won't be getting up alone, because others will go with you. Our follow-up team will be out there just to chat with you a little bit. Praise the Lord. Uh, Let's pray you guys can head out. Father, I thank you so much for today. I thank you that you are a God of truth and of justice and a God of goodness and mercy. At the same time, we ask that you are bringing people to the next service to get saved as well. We pray they're on their way right here to hear your good news, to give their life to you to be transformed. Holy Spirit, please continue to transform us daily so we live more and more like your Son. Father, your grace is sufficient for us. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. Therefore, we boast all the more gladly in our weaknesses so that your power may rest on us. Thank you, Lord. Let us praise your name in our last song today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.